Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to start a three-part series on Angela Davis's women, race, and class, which, you know, I haven't done any Angela Davis, and that's a problem. So I'm going to remedy that starting right now. But before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. I explain philosophical concepts, text, ideas, and ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, like, share, subscribe. You can see 300 episodes I already have up. If you go and dig through my library, if you found this as a podcast, you're going to be able to find me also on YouTube where sometimes I release videos to accompany my talking. If you found this as a, a YouTube video, you're going to be able to find just the audio alone on pretty much any podcast platform if you'd prefer that. Take yourself on a leisurely stroll. Maybe I can help you fall asleep. I've been told I have a soothing voice. Or maybe not. I don't know why. God, I'm tired. Uh, if anybody, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guinea or on TikTok at theory philosophy. Links for all these things in the description. If you want to help me out, you can like, share, subscribe. Like I already said, you can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but no pressure to do that. And yeah, I've been going on and on. Let's jump into Angela Davis's women, race, and class. So this episode is going to cover chapters one, two, three. The next episode is going to ch cover chapters 4 to 10, and then the third episode is going to cover chapters 11 until the end. And I'm going to have those breakdowns in the descriptions in case you just want to hear a certain chapter. You should be able to find it pretty easily. Now, I have to give a content warning. We're going to be talking here a lot about race-based oppression, violence inflicted against black people, histories of slavery within the United States. Like, really some of the most horrendous stuff to ever occur against humans. Um, and so please be warned that we're going to discuss some of these themes. Now, with that being said, I never go into detail about actual acts of violence uh, because that's, it's hard for me to talk about that stuff. Um, but it, it will be implied. So just know that, take care of yourselves, uh, and take any necessary means or any means necessary to um, take care of yourselves in the, in these instances. Now, I would also like to say that some of what Angela Davis says here is outdated. Uh, and I don't know how she's, if she's reflected on this text in, in just on its own, but there are some parts of it that reflect a certain period of thinking. Now, with that being said, it is super valuable. It's one of the most important texts, I think, to have ever been written. Uh, but... Of course, there's going to be some issues with it. Doesn't mean that uh, a perfect text can still have some flaws, or very good text can still have some flaws, and we're and I'll talk about those. But in any case, starts here with chapter one, titled "The Legacy of Slavery: Standards for a New Womanhood." So, when American historians first tried to comprehend the historical events and implications of slavery in the United States, they largely ignored the experiences of enslaved women which makes sense. This is pretty much all throughout quote-unquote Western history. It reflects the interests, experiences of men. And part of the reason for that through much of history is that in many different periods, at least in the West that I can speak to, women were just denied access to the ability to write, learning how to read and write and leave records that people later on could then interpret. So what has happened is that 
interpreting history has meant that women were forgotten, which has then been used to justify women's continued exclusion from various sites. Because people say, like, oh, look, women have been excluded for this long. Like, there must be a reason for this. Maybe it's biology. Maybe it's something like that, some ridiculous uh, reason for it, without actually considering the social and cultural reasons as to why women have been excluded and how these legacies of, of oppression and exclusion continue to today and into the future. Now, even though enslaved men were prioritized by these historians, black women were, of course, black enslaved women were, of course, given some kind of, some airtime, mostly to denigrate them. So they would be spoken about in terms of their sexual promiscuity, or they'd be spoken about in terms of them being matriarchal, being domineering towards their, uh, the black men in their lives. So they would be described as being sexually uncontrollable, promiscuous, and domineering over men. So Davis cites one exception, though, in the case of Her Herbert Gutman, who actually discussed enslaved women and who suggested that black women, black enslaved women, could act similarly to white women in a family setting, which was a, you know, it, there were some problems with it, obviously, but at the very least it challenged the idea of black women being these domineering figures within uh, the black household. Now, the idea of black women, black enslaved women being domineering, being matriarchal in these settings came from the very experiences or very situations of slavery uh, itself. Because black women in these settings were expected to do a lot more than just work domestic tasks as white women were expected to do. They were expected to take care of the children, to take care of the household, to also work in the fields, to also do hard labor in other ways. And so all of the ideas associated with femininity, the various qualities associated with a delicate femininity were excluded, were denied to black women. And any demonstration of black women's power was used as a way to call attention to their being overbearing, to their being too strong, to therefore as a sign that the black family is naturally matriarchal. So in a sense, Davis suggests that uh, slavery forced these black women into a, a space of being genderless. They were meant to occupy so many different roles that did not comply with the standardized idea about gender, where women were supposed to be delicate, work in the household, men were supposed to be strong and doing all this other stuff. That was not permitted to black women. But in the case of black men, they were largely, they would fall along uh, standard gender norms to some extent. Like there, we have to qualify this, that black men were emasculated in ways that white men did not have to experience, of course. But black men weren't expected in the same ways to also be taking up domestic tasks in the ways that black women were expected to be taking up the tasks of hard labor that are often associated with men's work. So in the eyes of slave owners, those reprehensible people who comprised much of the United States for a very long time, in the eyes of slave owners, black women weren't women in the way that they understood women except when it came to them being used for reproductive purposes and being treated like cattle, essentially, and being exploited as breeders for white men. And like, I 
like I said at the beginning, I often struggle describing details of violence, physical violence and oppression. Uh, And I can't really emphasize enough how bad these situations were. Like, whatever you imagine to be the worst experiences, like, multiply it by 10 million. And and you're probably somewhere uh, approaching the same universe as what, what occurred. Now, both enslaved men and enslaved women experienced oppression. Absolutely. No doubt. But in the case of women, there was the added experience of the constant threat of sexual assault and of being used for the sake of reproduction and having no right to your to their own bodies, their bodies being used as a tool for somebody else in ways that men didn't have to worry about, which doesn't mean that black men were not attacked on the basis of their sexuality. Of course, that's not it, but that it would be exercised differently against black women, and in many ways, a lot more violently. So when, when slavery was nearing its end, slave owners used enslaved women as essentially breeders so that more people could be born. They could raise more and people that they could then born into slavery because there was the fear that the pool of enslaved people would dry up and there wouldn't be any more people to exploit. And so legally, because that's how messed up this was, like all of this was enshrined into law. Legally, the children of enslaved women could be traded and sold as though they were animals, as you know, as they were subhuman, like they didn't have autonomy. They didn't have any identity themselves. They were just the property of somebody else. So Davis suggests that these violences inflicted against black women had the added effect of emasculating black men because they couldn't feel like they could protect their family, which was a hallmark of what it meant to be a man, to be able to protect one's family. And this is something that has been problematized. Like Bell Hooks looks at this in a more interesting way. I believe the text is called Ain't Die a Woman from Sojourner Truth's text. Um, But Bell Hooks offers, I think, a more nuanced perspective on this, really problematizing this idea about black male emasculation. But in any case, Davis is really making a good point here in identifying just how deeply rooted these gender norms would have been uh, internalized by even these people and how these feelings of being emasculated could have been used to then justify um, the feelings of extreme re- resentment and anger and confusion on the part of uh, black men. Not to mention, black men were also among black women doing jobs that they thought was reserved for them in that context because these ideas, of course, they didn't bring them from whichever nation they came from, from Western Africa, they adopted these attitudes within the United States, the quote-unquote West, from the Europeans. And so it would have been very strange to suddenly be, you know, working alongside black women when there's the belief that women are supposed to be doing some kind of tasks and men other kinds of tasks. Also, like, when you count up everything that women had to underwent with childcare. Uh, Davis includes testimonies of women describing how they would be carrying babies on their backs as they worked in the fields or like just like unbelievable circumstances that people had to live through. But these gender dynamics where women were kind of genderless 
and men were kind of cast into doubt about their own masculinity these continued even post-slavery into industrialization where these people no longer enslaved ostensibly would be hired as wage laborers these 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 i don't know why i said that this gender dynamic continued where black women were pursued to be possible wage laborers because they could be paid less so they'd be working alongside men in jobs that were traditionally reserved for men and davis draws upon marx and in uh, it's in capital it's in capital volume one i believe which i've covered on this channel if you want to go and listen to my covering that text or all three volumes of that but in capital volume one marx describes how capitalism furnishes the need for women to enter the workforce because it's constantly going to try and devalue wage labor always going to try or to reduce the amount of costs to cut costs of labor and so more and more people are going to be forced to work you can't just rely on a single income both people in a family have to work and marx problematically is like and this has the added effect of getting rid of women's natural femininity their innocence as they join the labor force which obviously relies upon a very european idea about what it means to be a woman and like the comparison is good like it's important but the experiences of black women in post-slavery United States were much, much, much worse than white women in Europe forced to work because to make ends meet. Like these are radically different things. But the point is there that she's really setting the tone for her for her Marxist analysis of these dynamics here. But that will actually, at least for me, come to be one of the shortcomings of this text. Now, in an optimistic turn. Davis suggests, and I think regrettably, she, she suggests that black women made, within hard labor, because of working through hard labor, black women made strong, they were physically strong, they developed a confidence in their ability to struggle for themselves, their families, and their people. So finding value in hard labor. So she pauses here, though, to consider how white women were robbed of the experience of performing productive labor and forced into the new category of femininity. So here she's suggesting that white women relegated to the home were doing unproductive things that were useless in terms from a Marxist standpoint. The idea being that under capitalism, domestic labor is useless in that it doesn't furnish a product that can be sold for value or that can you can make money from. It doesn't actually create value. Whereas work done in industry creates a product that can be sold it is therefore productive now if to just leave aside the problematic nature of dividing work into productive and unproductive work which i think on its own if we can possibly look at it neutrally is what it's a, it's a whatever point but it is so wrapped up like there's so many connotations there when you say that a type of work is productive and another type of work is unproductive it actually continues cycles of exclusion and oppression in my mind. But this also reveals the extent to which the economic conditions of the time are not the sole determining factor in how people are going to be treated. So white women were given able to work in the home in so-called unproductive labor uh, jobs, whereas black women seen, not seen as being feminine could work in these other jobs. And this reveals that industry and that capitalism 
even though it could exploit both classes of women no problem, obviously was drawing upon legacies of racism that came before it in order to, to better mobilize its working populations and to best use them for its purposes. So my point is that when we apply a Marxist analysis, you cannot dissociate it from these other oppressive schemes, these other oppressive mechanisms that exist, that predate it, and that exist within it. So with black women not being seen as feminine, and as being seen as being domineering, and as black families being depicted as, as being matriarchal, this was often used as a way to justify problems within black families or the black community. Of course, there are so many problems in the white community as well, and among white families, but they weren't put under the same microscope. So one way that this was justified was by saying that, oh, it's because they have weak fathers that there's, there are these problems, or men aren't, don't occupy the primary role in the household that there are these problems in the black family, in the black community. And this is still very much seen today. This explanation is being thrown around to explain any kind of issue that includes a black person. People will cite, on Fox News or something, that this has to do with a lack of black father figures within the black community. Of course, this is just a relic from the time of slavery and post-slavery to justify the systematic exclusion and oppression of black people and to make it an individualized phenomenon. To make it as though by just, if, if black fathers were just stronger within the family, then all would be good. It is a way to hide the fact that these systemic factors are playing an even greater part and contributing to the repeated violences inflicted against the black community and communities. And that's another thing, like talking about the black community within the United States is in many ways way too homogenous. I mean, like way too homogenous. Coming from so many different backgrounds, it's impossible to homogenize. And so when I do that, I'm doing it in a way to be as heuristic as possible, to make our uh, the opportunity for us to digest these histories because they often worked homogeneously these forces of oppression would work homogeneously against the black communities, that we can understand them in a homogeneous sense just for the sake of understanding the ways that oppression functions, not to be descriptive of the black community in any way and the many communities uh, that really comprise it. So to further under understand this so-called matriarchy phenomenon in the black community, some white academics and policymakers, journalists, tried to understand it as a situation in which black women and people were purely victims of slavery and they were forced therefore to adopt matriarchy. So these narratives ignored how enslaved men and women, in Davis's terms, manifested irrepressible talent in humanizing an environment designed to convert them into a herd of subhuman labor units. So Davis is doing something here that I think is really important in that Davis is describing the spirit within these communities, which isn't to downplay the oppression that they experienced and the, and the horrors of slavery, but it is to not reduce victims in these settings to the status of victims, 
to find like those how much strength there were and to really highlight the strength and to humanize the people that experienced it. And this is something that's done really well as well by uh, Paul Gilroy in The Black Atlantic, which I've covered as well, uh, but I'd really recommend for anyone interested in that. I think it's a very important thing, very important frame of mind and, and view to take when engaging uh, with these histories. Now, despite the narratives about matriarchy, Davis is competent in saying that within the black community and in any black family, the division of labor was relatively equal. Household tasks would be done by both parents. Uh, you know, there wasn't a strict divide in the way that bourgeois white families thought that there should be. And so she, she insists that the uh, division of labor and the tasks were largely equal. So not to mention the many instances, though, uh, of black women resisting slavery by organizing runaways, poisoning slave owners, teaching people like how to read and write and about the horrors of slavery, like Harriet Tubman, for example, including so many others. Now, she emphasizes the role of women here, but of course, black men were participating in the same kind of resistances. But she goes so far as to say that men and women were equal in their acts of resistance because, in her words, exploitation knew no sex distinctions, uh, which is a moment, like a kind of a jarring moment in that just prior she was describing how the oppression of slavery worked very specifically against black women in the case of them experiencing all the same oppressions as men, plus the constant threat of sexual assault, of being used as a breeder, essentially. And so I'm not entirely sure how to square this uh, this claim, but in any case, just, it's there. So any kind of alliance that could be drawn between black and white women, because white women were oppressed as well, obviously not to the same extent, like the alliance between them was going to be limited precisely for that fact. White women did not have the same experiences of oppression as black enslaved women in the United States. Like, there's just no comparison. And as we go on, we'll describe more, like, there were some alliances that would eventually come up, but largely there were, there were lots of divisions, you know, for this reason. And because white women, mostly white bourgeois women, were extremely racist. Like, they weren't innocent of being racist. And that puts us here into chapter two, the anti-slavery movement and the birth of women's rights. So here she begins by reflecting on Frederick Douglass's advocacy for women in tandem with his anti-slavery struggles. So Douglass really advocated for women, recognized that the anti-slavery movement had to include the voices of women and not speak for women, you know, being run by men and then speak for women. And at a time when it was emasculating to associate with women and the women's movement, Douglas did it anyways. Now, she includes some moments in which it seems like maybe, you know, he still had some sexist sentiments, like, fine. But largely, he was on the side of women and wanted to include women and thought that the anti-slavery movement had to elevate the um, lives and experiences of black women. So many white women joined this cause as well. White men too, for that matter. So one such figure was Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was an anti-slavery text that relies 
on and perpetuates some of the prejudices that underwrote and underwrites slavery. And this is a common theme and something that we see very much to this day, where efforts to oppose racism often end up being racist themselves. Like Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which is a text that on its surface looks to be against colonialism and imperialism, very much contributes to and perpetuates racism. None of the African on the Ivory Coast, none of the people from the Ivory Coast who are black get really get a voice in that text at all, for that matter. They're just there. They're like pawns in uh, Kurtz's and Willard? Or I'm thinking of Apocalypse Now. Can't remember if the main protagonist's name is Willard as well. In any case, the point is that there are so many examples of efforts to be anti-racist that are actually quite racist. Now, in the case here of Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, she frames women's efforts to oppose slavery as their intrinsic care for children, motivated by their intrinsic care for children. So for Stowe, she suggests that to fight for anti-slavery was just an example or a demonstration of black women's natural maternal instincts not wanting their children to be enslaved, which of course contributed to the idea of women being just domestic laborers, just being relegated to the home and just meant to care for children. Now in her text as well, Uncle Tom's Cabin, black people are depicted as childlike, defenseless, and happy under slavery. And there's a Disney film, oh God, what's it called? Uh, Song of the South, which is from like the 30s or 40s, that depicts um, a black slave man as being super happy and always loving taking care of the white children. Like a very horrible depiction of life under slavery. Now the idea of women being naturally caregivers, the idea that Beecher Stowe, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, contributes to and perpetuates with her text, Davis traces this to the advent of industrialization that subordinated women's roles to men's. They would no longer be seen as productive workers. Again, here we get that term, being productive. Productive workers, uh, instead, they'd be forced into unproductive roles, at least for white women. And this really uh, birthed the idea of femininity and all of the other terms attached to it. But in the case of white women, many of them would still oppose uh, manufacturing jobs. When they still occupied them, they would often equate their experiences of wage labor with slavery, suggesting that they are enslaved as wage laborers, which is often something that is said in certain Marxist circles, equating wage labor with uh, slavery, which is obviously just a way to really hit the hit the hammer home or hit the nail on the head or whatever the term is tired tired um to really describe and make clear their experiences uh within wage labor now that's something we can take or leave but it feels like it leaves a bad taste in my mouth to make that comparison and then there were the cases of well-off bourgeois white women who were dissatisfied with their experiences of working primarily in the home, of raising kids, and equating their experiences to slavery. This suggests they were enslaved, which is a way to seriously diminish the horrors of slavery. But I don't know, what do you, like, I'd love to hear more people's comments on this, like, 
in the case of people having their backs up against the wall, being forced to describe their experiences of oppression, like maybe it's important. I don't know. It feels wrong to me, but I'd really like if anyone felt like putting in the labor to educate me on that. Now, even though the experiences of white women and black women were different, some alliances did emerge. Not so many, but there were some. Like the case of uh, a woman by the name of Prudence Crandall, who was a school teacher, a white woman, who admitted a black student into her school, for which the town turned on her. And she uh, she was imprisoned, I think just for like a night. Like it was a pretty, it wasn't a very harsh sentence, but still, like it was a brave thing for her to do to take the side of a black student, to include a black student in her class, in her school. Then there was the case, uh, the case of uh, Lucretia Mott, who founded the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. And these white women abolitionists, like they were fighting against slavery, would accrue the tools to comprehend their own oppression as women. And they would, you know, like problematically, I think, use the experiences of enslaved women to describe their own experiences but in any case, they would do so in a way to help, in, in some cases, to call attention to the horrors of slavery, real slavery. And in, another example would be the Grimke sisters, who drew direct comparisons between white women's subjugation and black women's subjugation, which Davis, like, Davis celebrates these moments because they demonstrate the alliance that can be formed between oppressed people. And there is, like, a lot of beauty in that and a lot of strength while also I think we can be critical in any case this had the pro profound or I guess they had the profound conscience of the inseparability of the fight for black liberation and the fight for women's liberation these things were connected and they were never caught for Davis in the ideological snare of insisting that one struggle was absolutely more important than the other which is a good point. It's it's important to acknowledge that these struggles like can occur side by side for the same purpose. But I think it's also important to acknowledge that one of them was decisively worse. Um, in any case, it was absolutely important to align these movements, and it would help for the movements to gain critical mass because the more people that were involved and the more alliances that were drawn could then be used to call attention to the mutual factors that encouraged and participated in women's oppression, the oppression of women. Now, of course, there were lots of white women who, in the fight for women's liberation, directly, directly excluded black women, which, which can't be ignored. And I think this emphasizes the extent to which that as much as we love to see these alliances formed, there are very different histories that moted both forms of oppression. Black women experienced oppression very differently than white women. And so, like, these alliances are great, but the way in which it's conducted has to be careful not to just homogenize these experiences, because that homogenization will often just represent the interests of the dominant group who is being oppressed, in this case, white women. And I'm saying this primarily motivated by the idea of intersectionality from Kimberly Crenshaw, where black women's experiences are often diluted underneath those of black men or of white women. That puts us here into chapter three, class and race in the early women's rights campaign. 
Now, in all these struggles, many white men were involved. They, you know, it's not as though all white men were opposed to uh, women entering into political arenas or abolition. Lots of white men were part of it. But they would often exclude women from abolitionist events, seeking instead to represent men, to have black men come and speak. Some men opposed this male supremacy, like Nathaniel Rogers, William Garrison, Charles Raymond, Frederick Douglass, who thought that, you know, you can't really have abolition if you're just going to continue oppressing women. That seems, that's ironic. Now, in the women's rights movement, many men didn't want women's equality to extend to gaining the vote. It was just about equality. They just wanted equality, whatever that would have meant at the time, and not for women to gain the right to the vote for the suffrage uh, movement. They opposed that. So in 1848, there was what was called the Seneca Falls Convention, which was a convention on the status of women at the time, and it was largely a suffragist, suffragette, movement fighting for women's right to vote. And it was a contentious event because leading up to it, there were so many men speaking about how they were opposed to suffrage, but they were in favor of equality, uh, also in favor of ab abolition and the ways that marriage was oppressive. But they would stop short of wanting to extend the vote to women. Now, even those women who were fighting for the right to vote at the Seneca Falls Convention would exclude the experiences and demands of black women. They, uh, this, this event was largely white-focused, largely white middle-class women-focused. And there's a long legacy of this, not just against black women being excluded, but even among white women. Where long before the Seneca Falls Convention, working-class white women were calling attention to the fact that they experienced a mutual oppression by their capitalist overlord, lords being exploited as wage laborers, but also being exploited as women. So they experienced a dual oppression that they believed their white middle-class counterparts did not understand and who they did their interests they did not reflect. And even among abolitionist white people, people who wanted slavery to end, there was still lots of racism. Just because they saw the horrors of slavery didn't mean that they wanted to mingle among black people. And there's one thesis for this that explains this in that one of the motivating factors to end slavery was not out of the good hearts, motivated by the goodwill of white people wanting to free black people, but instead was motivated by the fear that eventually slavery would come for them and that they had to end slavery as an institution, not because they wanted to free black people, but because they wanted to defend themselves which meant that racism would still permeate that society. And in fact, in lots of ways, racism intensified following slavery, or maybe intensified is um, a loaded term. Instead, thinking about um, how, how it still extended into the post-slavery period and took on new forms and really became embedded within the very bedrock of all of America's institutions, which we'll get into more in the later chapters. So one example was that Frederick Douglass's granddaughter was excluded from going to school with a white school, even though the teachers and principals were all abolitionists, because there was the belief still in segregation that black and white people had to be separated. 
Now it would be a couple of years after the Seneca Falls Convention, after 1848, when Sojourner Truth would deliver her speech, Ain't I a Woman, to oppose the male idea that women were too weak and unintelligent for the vote. So Sojourner Truth's text essentially goes as follows, where she describes how strong she was, like physically, the work she was doing, how smart she was, while accompanying each one of these pieces of evidence with the phrase, ain't I a woman? Because everyone could see that she was a woman, and she was demonstrating the fact that their ideas about what it meant to be a woman were skewed and false. And this was like the genius of this, really, it has no parallel. The point being to under uh, undervalue and to call attention to the absurdity of the patriarchal ideas about what women were, were capable of. And her words also struck at the heart of racist white women who viewed black women as being inferior to them. Now, in one moment that, or one thing that Davis now says that just rubbed me the wrong way, well, I'll read it first. She suggests that in the <laughs> white abolitionists did not recognize that the white worker in the North, his or her status as free laborer notwithstanding, was no different from the enslaved worker in the South. Both were victims of economic exploitation, which is like, ah, uh, it's the, ah, uh, the, just, you can't think of a single example of free workers in the North, at least, well, I can't, uh, think of a single example of free workers in the North fleeing Northern capitalists to go South into slavery. Like, you don't hear about that. And that, for me, is just evidence that it wasn't the same. You can't homogenize slavery and wage labor exploitation. It's one thing to say that they're both bad. We have to criticize them. But to say that they were no different in that they were both economic exploitation is a little bit much for me. Because sure, like, and even like Noam Chomsky said this, like even a few years ago, that like it was, it was in some cases worse to be a wage laborer in the North because it was so normalized. Like there were no tools to understand that oppression other than the entire enterprise of Marxism that was emerging around that time, like that was used and even before Marx, all the socialists before then, which isn't to say that it wasn't bad, it isn't still bad. Like, of course, it needs to be challenged. There's so many problems with it, like that, of course. But these parallels need to be seriously decoupled in order to understand the differing histories, in order to understand these differing, different experiences and the different ways that they need to be challenged. And yeah, I'm going to close off here. That closes off chapter three. Next time, we're going to take up from chapter four titled Racism in the Women's Suffrage Movement. Uh, and tell me what you thought. Do you, do you buy it? Am, am I being too hard on Angela Davis? Like I think in some respect I am, uh, but I think these are points that need to be raised even though I have the utmost respect. And I think that like Angela Davis is without parallel, like it really like, <laughs> I, I mean, she's done more than I can ever imagine to do in my meager little life. Um, just an absolute paragon of strength. Unbelievable. Uh, but if there's anything I got wrong or anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it or anything anyone wants to clarify, like, please do. If you like what I did, you can like, share, subscribe. You can share, tell your friends. And yeah, on that note, take care.